Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. I say that a lot, but then I always have to qualify it, and this is going to be another one of those episodes. So today, I thought I would talk a bit about caller ID, spoofing, and robocalls. Mostly caller ID and spoofing. Robocalls, I think I'm going to have to save for another episode. But here in the United States, the major telecommunications companies, those being Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T, now have to work together to fight spam calls due to a mandate from the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC. Now, the too-long-didn't-listen message behind this, as opposed to too-long-didn't-read, is that the goal is to eliminate spam robocalls going to your phone so that you don't act like your phone is a bomb about to go off every time it rings. But to understand why this is necessary and how it all works, we have to go much deeper. So, if you, dear listener, are of a certain age, you might remember a time when we didn't all carry smartphones around with us all the time. You might even remember a time before we even carried simple cell phones with us. In fact, some of you might remember being on a telephone handset that was tethered to a phone that was mounted to the wall or sitting on top of an end table or something. And back in those days, dear friends, if someone called you, you really had no way of knowing who that someone was. I know. It's terrifying, right? The phone rings, and there's no way to know who or what is on the other side. Could it be Grandpa Joe? and he's found a golden ticket? Could it be the local food bank calling to see if you'll volunteer this year? Could it be a wrong number? The only way to find out was to answer the phone. Or, if you were a fancy person, you might let the call go to an answering machine. Side note, the answering machine traces its history all the way back to the 1930s, but when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, they were still relatively uncommon, from most of the people I knew, but by the mid-80s, that that had totally changed, and we started seeing commercials for, like, novelty answering machine outgoing messages. Yeah, that used to be a thing. There was this incredible pressure to create the perfect outgoing message to convey to those calling that you had a personality. But I, I digress. Let's get back on track. Many answering machines would play incoming messages out loud on a loudspeaker as someone was making the message, which meant that you could use an answering machine to screen your calls, and a lot of people did. So if you had anxiety about answering the phone, you could just wait for the answering machine to activate and then see if the other person on the other end of the call was going to wait around long enough to actually leave a message after hearing your hilarious and yet incredibly effective outgoing message. Then, Upon recognizing the voice, you could choose to either interrupt the machine by picking up the phone and having the call initiate, or just letting it go. Simpler times, really. Not that caller ID wasn't a thing back then. The foundation of caller ID technology has a history that dates back to the late 1960s. And to really understand all this, we should take yet another step back and just talk about phone calls in general, and we'll build from there. So when Alexander Graham Bell made his first call, now arguably not the first call, but that's a story for another time, it was a direct line from his station to that of his assistant, Thomas Watson. There was no need to route that call anywhere. 
It was a straight road, if you will, from one point to another. Now, let's say we've got a group of four people, and we want to connect these four people with phone lines so they can talk to each other on the phone. We could do this directly as well, right? A simple way to draw this out would be just draw four points as corners of a square. Uh, Those corners represent our four phone friends. And we draw straight lines from each point to each other point. So what you end up with is a square with a couple of diagonal lines crossing through the center. And boom, you've got your four-person network. Each person has a direct line to each other person in the network. But as we try to add more people to a system like this, we quickly see the limitations that we face. Each new connection means we have to establish cables between that person and every other person on the network. This gets expensive and complicated and messy and unsustainable. A phone network in which every single person with a phone has a direct line with every single other person with a phone is just impossible. You wouldn't even be able to move around because of all the cables everywhere. And so an important development in the history of the telephone system was the creation of the local exchange. The local exchange is a centralized point that you dial into, and then the exchange could switch on a connection between your line and the line of whomever it was you wanted to call. So in the early days of telephones, this was done with actual human beings sitting at a switchboard and manually plugging cables in to complete calls from one person to another. So now, rather than having direct connections with every other phone in existence, you really just need a direct connection from your phone to an exchange. This cuts way back on the amount of cables that you need in order to create a network. Now, this works fine for local calls, like, you know, within a city, everyone can connect to that one local exchange. But the word local gives us a hint that there isn't one single exchange for every phone line out there. Now, local exchanges will cover a specific region, but beyond that, you have other local exchanges. And to connect these exchanges together, phone companies laid out what were called trunk lines. These are cables capable of carrying multiple phone signals simultaneously, which is a good thing too, otherwise a single long-distance call would prevent anyone else from making a similar sort of call between those two specific exchanges. The networks grew organically, connecting to one another and forming what we call the Public Switched Telephone Network, or PSTN. You could look at it as a sort of hierarchy, as more of the world built out phone systems. At the very bottom of this hierarchy, you had your individual landline phones. The stuff in homes and offices and phone booths and stuff like that. We used to have these things called phone booths, Superman would change in them? Doesn't matter. One level up from this level, and you have your local exchanges, right? These are the ones that connect local calls to each other. And as I said, in the old days, this was done with human operators moving physical plugs into physical outlets to complete circuits and switch on a phone call. But it didn't take long before the complexity of phone systems necessitated innovation to create automated ways of handling this. One level up from local exchanges are your trunk exchanges. The trunk exchange is to local exchanges, as local exchanges are to individual landlines. The trunk exchanges allow the various local exchanges within a country to connect to one another. A level above the trunk exchanges, you have international gateways, which interconnect the phone system of one country with other countries. 
Often you end up having super long cables connecting these, including cables that run under the ocean. You know, there's cables under the Atlantic that connect Europe to North America, for example. All right, so now let's get a bit more complicated by throwing cellular phones into the mix. Cell phones communicate to cell towers, which you can think of as being kind of similar to the local exchange I was talking about earlier. So cell towers are essentially antenna, and the cell phones communicate with cell towers through electromagnetic radiation, specifically radiation that falls into the microwave frequency range, but they're not the same microwaves that we use to zap our popcorn in microwave ovens. It's not that level of frequency. It's also a very low wattage that we use for cell phones. Now, the microwave acts as a carrier wave. And I've talked a bit about carrier waves in the past with stuff like radio signals. Each phone is using a slightly different frequency. Otherwise, you would run into issues with phones interfering with one another. All right, so cell phone towers are at the heart of the cells that make up a service area. One really clever thing about this approach is the handshake that happens as you move across a region. So you can be on a phone call and you could be, let's say, in a car and you pass out of the range of one cell phone or cell tower, rather, and you enter into the range of another and your call continues on as if you had a solid connection on a single cell tower the entire time. I'm going to leave it at that because getting into the tech of all that would really get us off course. This episode would end up being like three hours long, but maybe I'll do a full episode about how cell towers work. It is really fascinating because they have to be very careful with the frequencies they use in order to both service everyone who's within range of a specific cell tower and not interfere with anyone who's at a neighboring cell tower. Anyway, connecting the towers is the Mobile Telephone Switching Office, or MTSO. Each service provider has its own MTSO in regions. So if the person you're talking with is in the same region, such as like in the same city as you, and they happen to be on the same carrier, one MTSO pretty much handles everything. The call signals go through the cell towers to one another through the MTSO, uh, but the calls are not made directly phone to phone. It's not like your phone is acting like a radio directly with the other phone. Now, if you're calling someone who's on the other side of the country, it's a little bit different. Typically, your call would go from your phone to a cell tower and from the cell tower to the local MTSO of your carrier, then from there to the PSTN, that big public switching telephone network. And that would then route your call to the MTSO relevant to whomever it was you're calling on the other end. So even cell calls can rely upon the old phone system. Getting back to caller ID, back in the 1960s, there was an engineer named Theodore Periskovakos. He still is. I mean, he's still alive today. He developed a way to send electronic data over telephone lines. In 1971, he filed and received a patent for a, quote, decoding and display apparatus for groups of pulse trains, end quote. This would become the basis of caller ID in which the telephone of the person making the call will send data relating to the phone number of that uh, originating call along with the call itself. And a device on the other end, on the receiving end, could get this information, decode it, and display the incoming phone number, and thus identify the incoming call. 
Other engineers uh, around the same time period began to develop similar technologies and approaches. And so the early days of color ID are a bit muddled as there are numerous patents assigned to different inventors, some of which acknowledge the existence of other inventions as prior art. One of those inventors was Katsuo Hashimoto for a, quote, telephone information displaying device, end quote. The abstract of that patent essentially lays out what we think of as color ID. So I'm going to read to you the abstract of this patent. Here it goes. A calling party's telephone number displaying device in which, while the telephone set of a subscriber is ringing in response to calling signals from a telephone exchange office, the telephone number of a calling party and information are displayed on digital display units at high speed before lifting the handset. Accordingly, the subscriber can determine whether or not he should answer the call before picking up the handset. Thus, his privacy can be protected from a variety of telephone troubles, such as wrong number and nuisance calls. The display is maintained as it is even if the handset is put back after the talk, but it will be cleared automatically upon reception of the next call to display the telephone number of the next calling party. When the subscriber picks up the handset to make a call, the internal circuit is automatically changed to display a telephone number dialed by him. That's it. So that patent pretty much explains that the invention would allow telephones to send and receive signals between successive ringing signals. So in other words, when the phone company isn't sending the signal to make the receiving phone ring, it could send the signal containing information about the origin of that call. And that's why if you're using a landline and you get a phone call with a system that had caller ID, you would only see the ID stuff pop up after the first ring happened. The method for sending the information was a type of frequency modulation, uh, that's changing the frequency of a signal in order to encode information on it, called frequency shift keying, or FSK. Applying FSK to a carrier signal alters that carrier signal in a way that can be interpreted on the other side in some manner. So in the case of color ID, that some manner is that the transmitting side can encode the phone number in that carrier wave, and the receiving side can decode that carrier wave and get back at that number. FSK is used in lots of applications, not just caller ID, but for our purposes, it's just important that we know that this is the methodology that the phone companies use to transmit the info of, hey, this is the phone number that just dialed you. But this wasn't going to be a service that phone companies were going to throw in for free. No, this would be something that companies would charge for on top of the normal phone bill. Now, the story goes that the phone companies at first planned to offer this service as an audio one. So in other words, you could opt into this service and you would get a verbal alert when you picked up the phone, telling you the phone number that the call originated from. Uh, And the phone companies were hoping to charge on a per-use basis. So every time you did this, you get charged a little amount. That's not how things eventually turned out. We'll get into caller ID a little bit more after the break, and then we'll talk about the systems that enable spoofing. But first, let's take that quick break. So phone companies were licensing technologies to enable caller ID in the 1970s, but it wasn't until the mid-1980s that we saw the first pilot program of caller ID here in the United States. That took place in Orlando, Florida, where, you know, 
the characters from Book of Mormon really wanted to go. And that happened back in 1984. Bell South offered a service called Touchstar, and caller ID was one of the features that you could opt into with Touchstar. It was called Custom Local Area Signaling Service, but it would become known as Caller ID. Now, if you weren't around in the 1980s, you might be surprised to hear that the emergence of Caller ID was viewed with suspicion from multiple fronts. In the U.S., politicians were asking if perhaps Caller ID would violate wiretapping laws, and others were likening it to tracing a phone call, kind of like what you see in movies where, you know, the police are trying to track a, a specific criminal as they talk on the phone. But in fact, uh, it was such a controversial subject that it took more than a decade for all 50 states in the U.S. to actually adopt the technology. California held out the longest. California only incorporated caller ID in 1996, 12 years after Orlando, Florida got in on it. And by the mid-90s, there was another big concern to think about, and that was privacy. We weren't quite at the same level that we are now, not by a long shot, where the average netizen has generated tons of information about themselves that can link back to them, but we were entering into an era in which certain companies were building out comprehensive databases about consumers. And so you started to see companies building out profiles or even dossiers on people. Now, if you want to be charitable, you could argue this helped those companies serve their customers more effectively. But if you wanted to be cynical, you could say that this gave companies more information to leverage while trying to sell goods or services to a potential customer. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But what concerned privacy advocates is that a business could theoretically rely on caller ID. So if someone were to call in, let's say that someone needs to talk to a customer service rep, then that rep could do a reverse phone number lookup on that call and pull up a full profile of the person calling. And there were a lot of privacy implications that were concerning. Actually kind of seems quaint in comparison to what we deal with today, at least if you look into how private information gets handled these days. For that reason, telephone companies introduced an option to allow customers to opt into caller ID blocking. Now, if you did this, it meant that your number would not be displayed when you called someone else. You were effectively blacklisted for caller ID. And so, you know, if I opted into this and I called you, you would probably see some sort of message like caller unknown or something similar to that, which probably means you wouldn't likely pick up my call. To be fair, you probably wouldn't anyway. I'm kind of a drag to speak to on the phone. It took time for attitudes around caller ID to change, but we did obviously see that happen. Today, for many people, including myself, we don't pick up the phone if we don't recognize the number that's displayed on our phone screen. And that means that if the call comes up as unknown or something along those lines, we're not likely to answer it. We'll probably let it go to voicemail. In fact, these days, I feel a sense of anxiety even if I do recognize the number. Which is weird, because I was one of those folks who, back in the 80s and 90s, I loved to talk on the phone. Now, it seems kind of odd. I have a small group of friends and family with whom I'll chat with on the phone, but they are truly the exception and not the rule. Anyway, 
Color ID made the transition from being viewed as being invasive or creepy as to being necessary in order to function as a human being in the modern technical age. And there's a related thing I should talk about quickly for folks in the United States, and that's the calling name presentation, that's CNAP, or caller name delivery, that's CNAM systems. Uh, These are systems that can provide a name to go with a phone number. So with these systems, you don't just get a telephone number, you get a person or business name that is associated with that phone number. So here's how it works in the United States. Let's say we've got two people. We've got Max and Chris. And Max is in New York and Chris is in California. What's more, Max is a T-Mobile customer and Chris's carrier is AT&T. And both Max and Chris are using smartphones, so they're on cellular networks. So Max calls Chris. Max's smartphone is connected to a nearby cell tower, a nearby T-Mobile cell tower, and that routes the call through T-Mobile's MTSO in that particular region, and the MTSO then routes the call through the PSTN, the public switching telephone network, and that then routes the call to the AT&T MTSO all the way out in California. That connects to a cell tower that's in Chris's area, and it sends the call to Chris's smartphone. Now, it's at this stage, the AT&T stage, where we see the system call up the name. So, in other words, the the name lookup is on the receiver's end. It doesn't originate from the, the phone that's making the call. It's all down to whichever carrier is in operation on the receiving end. And um, AT&T sees that Max's phone number is coming in, so it recognizes the number, but to associate that number with Max as a person, that requires a database lookup. And because Max is a T-Mobile customer, not an AT&T customer, AT&T technically has to pay a very small fee called a DIP fee to look up that information and then to send that on to Chris. Then Chris sees that Max is calling and picks up. Or Chris ghosts Max. I don't know what their friendship looks like, to be honest. My point being that the name associated with a phone number isn't magically connected to that number. Rather, there are these massive databases of phone customers out there, typically at the local level, and these databases match numbers to names. There's no universal database out there that has every name and every number, so phone companies have these ongoing agreements to charge these small dip fees to dip into the databases and retrieve relevant information. Alright, so that's caller ID, and I think it's pretty easy to understand from a high level how it works. But then what about spoofing? Well, spoofing is a practice in which the number that pops up on a caller ID system is not the same as the actual number making the call. And there are legitimate reasons to do this that have nothing to do with scams or crimes. So spoofing, as it stands, is not illegal on its own. It's only illegal if you're using spoofing to purposefully mislead or scam people. Then you can face a pretty big fine in the United States. But spoofing is just a thing, not illegal. So let me give you a scenario where it's it's allowed. Let's say that you work at an accounting firm and you're in charge of making some follow-up calls relating to a specific account. Now you have your own phone at your desk, but and your own phone actually has its own extension. You can make calls within your department 
you know, to directly to your coworkers, no problem. But chances are you would rather have your outgoing calls, the ones you make outside of your company, map not to your desk's phone number, but to the number for the accounting firm as a whole. That way, anyone on the receiving end would see that it's a call coming from this big accounting company, not some unknown desk phone. You would need a way to replace your desk phone's number with the overall company's phone number. This happens all the time with big companies and doctor's offices and stuff like that. So you can probably think of lots of legitimate uses where the call going out seems to be coming from a very large known entity rather than an individual phone located within that entity. But to make this happen, you have to have some sort of technology that does the old switcheroo with the phone numbers. Now, as I mentioned earlier, caller ID in the old phone system involves using FSK, or frequency shift keying, to alter a carrier signal in a specific way to transmit information about a phone number in between the signals that cause the receiving phone to ring. And it turned out that if you could figure out the FSK process and build the right technology, you could build out a system that would use FSK to transmit false information, allowing you to mask the true originating number of a call and substitute in something else. It would let you spoof a phone number, in other words. And this, again, was, was made on purpose eventually. Like when, Once we got to the point where we had big companies with these kind of phone systems, it was sort of a necessity. So it's not like this was an oversight, or, or rather, it wasn't a vulnerability. It ended up being an opportunity. But if you wanted to take advantage of it, it wasn't really easy to do. Back in the early 2000s, for example, it was actually pretty challenging. With the right hardware and software, and with a digital phone line, you could manage it, but it was beyond most people. Some big businesses used it for the purposes I mentioned earlier, but that was kind of the extent of it. Now, part of what makes this possible is a system called a private branch exchange, or PBX. So this doesn't fit neatly into that hierarchy I mentioned earlier. A PBX is a telephone system that's typically within a really big organization, like a big business. And essentially what it does is it allows for an internal telephone system, that is, one that connects all the internal phones with each other, but it keeps a limited number of external phone lines that connect outward to the general you know, public switching telephone network, or PSTN. So let's say we're looking at a corporation with like 5,000 employees. Rather than making sure every single employee has a direct phone line to the outside world, the business chooses to set up a PBX. While there's a phone at every employee's desk, and these phones can make direct calls to one another within the business's local network, to make a call to the outside world, first you might have to do something like dial a 9, and that actually opens up one of the business's limited external phone lines. So let's say that this particular business has 100 dedicated external phone lines, which sounds like a lot, but it's way fewer than the 5,000 you would need for every single employee to have their own personal external line. As long as fewer than 100 employees are making calls to the outside world at any given time, there's not really a problem here. There are different flavors of PBX, and they date back even to when the phone system was purely running on analog signals and there were no digital signal phone lines. 
Today, PBXs include technologies like Voice Over Internet Protocol, or VoIP, An IP PBX, or Internet Protocol Private Branch Exchange, can sometimes include the ability to spoof a phone number. It can be built into the system. Sometimes it's got a very easy way to access and make these changes. You'll just have like a little online form, and you can go in and you can select what you want the outgoing call number to look like. But, you know, it's really handy if you want everything to look like it's coming from a a major office phone number, but it's also opened up the opportunity to start a new kind of fraudulent business. One early company that tried to create a business out of spoofing was founded by a dude named Jason Jepson, who launched a service called star38.com. With star38, customers who uh, from the beginning were supposed to be limited to people like licensed private investigators, law enforcement, and debt collectors would be allowed to pay a fee, and that would let them make phone calls while disguising the phone number that they were using as, you know, something else. Now, that (laughs) the thinking was that the average person isn't keen to pick up the phone if they happen to know that there's a private investigator on the line or a debt collection agency. You know, they would rather ghost that call. So the thinking was it sure would be useful to be able to hide that information and convince the person on the other end of that that line to actually pick up the phone. So the best way to do that is to hide who you are. Star38.com didn't have a long and illustrious history in its original form. Three days after he launched the service, Jepson announced he was looking to sell the business. He had received numerous threats and harassing calls and felt it was just, you know, not the right line of work for him. Other services, like one called Camophone, you know, like camouflage, but Camophone, those kind of surfaced, and Star38 actually did come back as a service marketed as being exclusive to law enforcement agencies. And that was really the beginning of spoofing. But when we come back, we'll talk about how spoofing really proliferated as VoIP systems grew in popularity and how the FCC is responding to the issue today. But first, let's take another quick break. The emergence of voice over internet protocol was one of those truly disruptive technologies. In this case, it was disrupting the telecommunications business that got, you know, totally turned on its head because of this. VoIP would allow people to make phone calls using the internet as the transmission system, essentially bypassing the phone companies in the process, at least on one end of the call, possibly both. VoIP phones can connect to one another over the internet and not even touch the phone system, at least not the way that normal telephone calls do. But what if someone were to use a VoIP system to call someone with a phone that's connected to the old public switching telephone network, or PSTN? Well, any VoIP call connecting to the PSTN has to go through what's called a VoIP gateway, which serves as a bridge between the two systems. See, uh, voice traffic over... Uh, internet protocol, uh, that that's using packet switching protocols. That's what the internet at large uses in order to send data. It 
divides up files into packets of information and then sends them across the network to be essentially reassembled on the other side. But this is incompatible with how phone calls are transmitted across the PSTN. It's two totally different systems. So the gateway has to decompress the digital packets from the VoIP call and turn it into a digital signal that then can be converted into an analog signal to cross the PSTN, which is pretty wild, right? Gateways also come in different flavors. There are standalone gateways. Uh, then there are gateway functions that can be built into specific types of routers. Uh, there's also the IP PBX that I mentioned earlier. Those can act as gateways. The important part for our discussion is that many of these VoIP services allow users to take advantage of PBX features that traditionally only big companies could use, including spoofing the phone number. So as VoIP technology proliferated and as more providers began to offer up spoofing services, including ones that just they allow you to start up a, an account and you pay a certain amount and then from that point forward, you get just have your account deducted whenever you're making calls using spoofing. This kind of, of technology really allowed bad actors to see potential for spoofing numbers for malicious purposes. The goal is always to convince someone to pick up the ding-dang phone. And one of the popular approaches centered around spoofing uh, is to create a number that is similar to the target number you're calling. So in other words trying to get something within the same area code, maybe even the same phone prefix. I get this all the time with uh, with spoofed numbers. So the idea is that if you see a number pop up on caller ID and it appears to be a local number, you're more likely to pick up the phone because you're more likely to feel that the person on the other end of that call is someone you know, or at least it's something relevant to you. And that's how they get you. Well, that's one way. Another way is to use databases of personal information to create spear phishing attempts, though not every scammer goes to that kind of trouble, but they could attempt to spoof specific numbers that you might know. So you might think, oh, it's my auntie calling. I wonder what's up. And you answer and you find out it's not your auntie, it's a scammer. Uh, a lot of these hackers and scammers just sort of cast a very wide net to see if they catch anything. If you pick up a phone, that is a catch. At that point, you might be prompted to, say, press a number in response to a specific direction, you know, like, press 2 to speak with a representative. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. A lot of these are actually worked into systems where if you do a button press, it gets interpreted as an authorization for a charge. And the scammers are making money off of this and you're getting charged through your phone company and you get these you know, fraudulent charges on your account. So don't fall for that. Um, uh, this is essentially illegal. I mean, it is illegal, but it doesn't stop people from doing it because it's kind of hard to catch them. Uh, you might also get someone who's on the other end of the call and they're looking to get valuable information from you, like a bank account number or something. Obviously, is a bad idea to engage in this sort of stuff. In fact, it's bad enough that some phone companies and the FCC have argued that if you don't recognize a number, don't answer it. Think about that for a moment. This <laughs> You have companies, like phone companies. Their business 
is charging customers for this interconnectivity, this ability to have communication channels open. And then they're saying, by the way, if you don't recognize a number, don't use our services, which we are charging you for. It's kind of wild, right? Because you would think if this is that big of a problem, surely there has to be some measure you can take to kind of curtail this problem. Because what you're telling me right now is that your service isn't good enough for me to rely upon all the time because there are people who are leveraging it to try and take advantage of me. That's not a great marketing message, right? Now, the use of numbers that are similar to your own typically gets called neighbor spoofing or neighborhood spoofing. And it's a pretty irritating tactic. Uh, It's also possible that someone could spoof your phone number while they are calling someone else. So for them, it's going to come up on caller ID that you're the person making the call, right? It's going to be your phone number, even though you're not the one doing it. It's because it's been spoofed. So the question is, what do you do if that happens to you? You are not going to like the answer because there's not much you can do other than try to explain to anyone who's calling you up angry that you're making these calls that you're not the one making the calls that are upsetting them. That's kind of difficult to to get across because people are looking at their caller ID and saying, no, I see on my ID that you are the one calling me. I'm telling you to stop. And you're, meanwhile, are trying to say, no, no, I, I promise it's not me. Someone is spoofing my phone number. Depending upon the person on the other end of the line, they might not have any idea of what that means or even know that that's possible. Now, I've had this happen to me in the past. However, not on my personal phone. So many years ago, I was working at a consulting firm and I was getting calls from a a woman who was angry that I was calling her and I was making these crazy machine noises into her phone. Now, I figured out that what was happening was that some fax machine was calling her landline as if it were another fax machine. And since her phone is not a fax machine, she was just getting that garbled electronic mass of sounds whenever she picked up the receiver. And she said that the number that was associated on caller ID belonged to the company I worked for. So I had her read me the number. And sure enough, it was our office's main phone number. But It wasn't our fax number. It wasn't the number for the fax machine we had. And I even went over to our fax machine and I used a a report to generate uh, a report that told me about all the outgoing calls that had been made, every single fax that had been sent. And this was in a day where we still faxed occasionally anyway. And I checked it against this woman's number and I saw there was no call from our fax machine going out to her number. There was nothing coming out from our office that was going to her. But it appeared as though someone had been spoofing our office's phone number for a fax, no less, and was sending out stuff to people like this woman, and there wasn't anything I could do about it because we had nothing to do with the situation in the first place. We were victims just as she was. Someone else had picked our number to use a mask for some reason, and because the VoIP system they were using allowed for this kind of thing, there was really no way for us to even know who was doing it, much less stop them. It was frustrating for the woman, and it was not super great for me either, because I genuinely wanted to help her. I don't want anyone to be 
you know, aggravated and harassed in this way. And that really stinks, right? I mean, if someone makes use of your number and then harasses another person, you could be left holding the bag. And your defense is, it wasn't me. Someone spoofed my phone number. That is pretty hard to prove to someone unless you can actually show them that your phone did not make those outgoing calls by just showing them a record of every call you've made over, you know, whatever length of time. But more frequently, we find ourselves on the receiving end of these calls, which I guess we should be thankful for because it's irritating, but not as irritating as being blamed for them. And the frequency of these calls have picked up the pace over the years. Now, 2020 was actually a bit of an outlier. We saw a dip in spoofed robocalls in 2020. But in June of 2021, there were more than 4 billion robocalls. So it's not like that's a problem that's going to go away. I mean, that's nearly 150 million robocalls per day. That being said, the FCC and major phone carriers are trying to fight back a bit. The FCC passed a mandate, uh, actually Congress passed the law, that requires all the major carriers in the U.S., uh, those being AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, to comply with a rule that requires them to incorporate a technology called stir-slash-shaken, which is very James Bondish, you know? Now, the idea behind this is that stir-slash-shaken is supposed to verify that a number that pops up on caller ID is, in fact, the number that belongs to the line that's making that phone call in the first place. In other words, it's supposed to help detect spoofing. It would mean that phone companies could filter calls and potentially block some of them, or at least label them as spam before they get to your, your phone. Now, those three carriers have said that they have all enabled this technology on their own networks, which is good because the deadline for doing so was this past June, uh, June 30th, 2021, to be precise. Smaller regional carriers in the United States currently have a deadline of June 2023 to implement this technology, though that could change. The FCC might step up that deadline. So what's going on with this technology? Well, first, let's talk about what these names stand for, though I suspect there's some backronym shenanigans going on here. That is that, you know, they came up with the names and then tried to figure out what they stood for as opposed to the other way around. Anyway, STIR stands for Secure Telephony Identity Revisited. <laughs> and SHAKEN <laughs> stands for Secure Handling of Asserted Information Using Tokens. So the Ken part of SHAKEN comes from tokens, and you cannot convince me that this wasn't some crazy backronym thing. Anyway, these two technologies work in tandem. Uh, SHAKEN is honestly just sort of a a broader thing. We'll get to it. So STIR comes out of a working group of the organization IETF. That stands for Internet Engineering Task Force. The group figured out a way to append digital signatures on a call as a means of authenticating that a call comes from a specific phone number for realsies. Shaken refers to the standards that service providers are supposed to follow while they're deploying STIR in their networks. So Shaken really is Here's how you use this technology that is STIR. The protocols give three levels of attestation that carriers can assign to a call, or service providers, I think is how they word it. Service providers can assign to a call. So full attestation means that the service provider uh, has a call originating out of their service, 
and they say that that call is in fact coming from a number that this particular customer is authorized to use. So in other words, it's legit. Then you have partial attestation, and that means that the carrier has authenticated the customer making the call. They're saying we know who is making the call. However, we cannot verify that this customer is actually authorized to use the number in question. Then there's gateway attestation, means that the uh, service provider can authenticate where it received a call, but can't authenticate the source, can't say who for certain sent it. The information is meant to be shared between carriers so that one carrier can essentially say to another, hey, here's this call that needs to go over your network to get to your customer, but I totes can't verify that the call is legit, so it may be sus just a heads up. And then your carrier might block the call or append a label alerting you, the end customer, that the call could be spam. The way this works in practice is you've got someone making a call, let's say it's scuzzy scumbag, who's posing as a member of the Internal Revenue Service, but Scuzzy really just wants to fish personal information out of you. Scuzzy picks up the phone, or more likely uses an automated robo-dialer, and calls your number and spoofs their own number in the process to make it seem as if it's the IRS calling you. The call goes out over Scuzzy's service provider, whomever that may be, the service provider takes a look at the originating number and the source of the call to determine what level of attestation to assign to that call. Then it makes use of an authentication service to create a digital certificate that holds onto this information, then passes both the call and the certificate on so that it ultimately ends at the terminating service provider. This would be whatever service provider you use. So let's say it's like AT&T. So now it gets sent to AT&T. So AT&T, your service provider, upon receiving this signal and digital certificate, sends the certificate to a verification service, which attempts to verify if the originating source of the call is authorized to make calls from that number it claims to be calling from. Then it returns this information to AT&T, and then AT&T can either block the call or label it or pass it on to you. So this approach is not like a catch-all for all robocalls and spam or even for spoofing. It's not going to put an end to it, but it is meant to help cut back on those practices. There are other companies trying to address this issue in other ways. There are companies that have blocking services that you can use. Uh, there's the do not call registry that you can be part of. And then companies like Verizon are trying something different. Like Verizon has introduced an updated call filter app that will send suspected spam calls that appear to have phone numbers from your area straight to voicemail. So in other words, those neighborhood spoofing calls would never even make your phone ring. It would go straight to your voicemail. Of course, this means that if there is someone from your region who is actually trying to call you for realsies, they might end up going straight to voicemail too. Now you can go into the app's filter settings and turn those off for specific numbers. So it's not like, you know, it's an all or nothing, but it does mean that at least in some cases there might be more hands-on work for the consumer to get everything to work out properly. Now, I think we will continue to see companies and governments really try to crack down on this practice because it's so irritating. Like, the people in charge don't like it either, right? Politicians do not like 
robocalls and spam because it affects them too. And so we're likely to see more strides taken to try and combat it. At the same time, we'll see the people who are making use of it try and find ways around the system. So it's going to be a seesaw kind of approach. And it's certainly an irritating one. So if, like me, you treat your phone like it's a way to send email and text and that's it, or maybe occasionally, you know, look at pictures of cats, then you're in good company because this approach of robocalls and spoofing has really created a, an environment of distrust with our communication devices. So much so that the companies in charge of providing those services are saying, yeah, kind of stinks, doesn't it? And, and say like, yeah, you should probably not pick up the phone. And, and again, they're the ones providing the service to allow you to get calls in the first place. It's not great, but that's kind of, you know, how technology can be, right? It's, it, we can create these amazing tools that open up incredible potential possibilities, but it also means that people who are looking at the system from a different perspective may find ways to twist it to benefit themselves at the expense of the rest of us, which you know, again, kind of stinks. So yeah, this is one of those topics where while I say I love all things tech, I don't love spoofing. I think it's, uh, at best it's misleading and at worst it is, it is, uh, predating upon vulnerable populations, which I don't think is cool at all, but that wraps up this episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 